When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. From Vice and Brent 2020, London Borough of Culture. This is Vent Documentaries. Young people from one London borough telling you the stories we care about. This is Series 3. We're talking about justice. I'm Lauren. Over the last few months, I've started hearing the term prison abolition. I know it's about trying to get rid of prisons, but apart from that, I really don't know what that means. Growing up in London, prison and the police is something you can't not think about. You hear stories about stop and search, and like literally the other day I saw the police stopping this boy on a bike around the corner from my house. I had this natural distrust of the criminal justice system, but I'm not really sure what that means for me. Why are people fighting for a world without prisons? And what would that even look like? I was in prison the first time for six weeks. This is social justice campaigner Amanda Hales. Amanda said, to understand why we should get rid of prisons, I needed to understand why she committed her crime in the first place. Up until the age of... 14, 15, I had what a normal life, but then I started noticing my mum acting strangely, um, a little bit different, but just odd little things that didn't add up to much on their own. She had bipolar and she started to um, focus on, on me. She used to say that um, I was evil, devil incarnate, that I had evil inside me, that she, only she could see. Quite horrific, Do you know, I didn't know how to cope with it, I didn't know how to deal with it. And after being told that time and time and time again, you start believing it. You start thinking that, that, that it's true. Amanda tried to ask the adults in her life for help, but she couldn't convince anyone that anything was wrong. So she had to find her own ways to cope. When it got really bad, um, my mum also had um, a physical health problem called Crohn's disease, and she was on a lot of painkillers. She was on Valium, she was on sleeping tablets, and I ended up um, taking those myself. You know, when I'd taken a few Valium, if my mum called me an evil bitch or, you know, the spawn of Satan, it didn't hit as hard as when I was straight. Trauma is, it's hard to deal with 
when it happens. But the impact of that trauma each and every day can have profound effects on you. Been in abusive relationships, but because my sense of worth wasn't very much, I thought I deserved that. That's all I deserved. I was stupid. I, you know, I was a stupid bitch. Whatever, you know, my abusive boyfriends were calling me. I believed that because that's what I'd been told at a young age. So this coping strategy that Amanda learned as a teenager of self-medicating to dull the pain, it continued into her adult life. I was introduced to um, a drug called Temgesic, which is a pain-killing drug, and it's incredibly strong, it's opiate-based, and I became addicted to them. Again, I was taking them just to suppress all my emotions. I started taking them and they, are, they were so addictive. I wasn't actually prescribed methadone the first time for heroin addiction, it was for a temgesic addiction. So I went from prescription pills, not being able to afford those pills anymore, and then turning to heroin. You don't have that in your everyday life. So it's quite, for me, it was quite an unusual emotion, you know, this euphoric feeling. So that's the, what I craved more than the drugs itself at the beginning. And I never thought I'd become an addict. I never thought I'd lose everything, but that's exactly what happened. I lost everything. Amanda committed a crime and was released on remand. She moved out of the city she was living in to flee an abusive relationship, which breached the terms of her probation. She ended up being sentenced to six weeks in prison. When she was released... I got pushed out the door with no housing, no doctors, no methadone, no support and no hope. And I was sleeping in an addict's house. I was giving them money to sleep there and I was working the streets that first night out. She very quickly got arrested again and was sentenced to eight more weeks in prison. When I came out the second time, again, I was working the streets. It's a horrible catch-22 that you're in. You're only committing crime because you've got a heroin addiction. It's that revolving doors that is so frustrating. If support and help were given a more vital time, then I wouldn't have gone on, on to, you know, to commit these crimes. I finally got a place in a hostel and I went for methadone, but then I had to see a mental health worker who just, who came into the hostel um, as part of um, their work. And I had counselling and counselling literally changed my life. Fortunately, I, I wasn't given just six weeks of counselling like they do today. Um, fortunately, there was an organisation that allowed me to have two years of counselling because that's what I needed. It wasn't just my drug addiction I needed counselling with, but my, the effects of childhood trauma, the effects of domestic abuse, coercion, exploitation. I needed to talk about all of that. Some people think that prison stops crime. For me, prison did not stop me committing crime. If I had been given proper support, I wouldn't be committing the crimes in the first place. 
what the prison system really does is try to use punishment and exile to hide social problems like conflict and harm. Morgan M. Page. I'm a writer, artist, and historian, and I'm also a prison abolitionist and sex worker activist. Morgan told me that one of the central ideas behind the prison abolition movement is that offering care and support is way more effective at reducing crime than punishing people. I think in a lot of ways it's really easy to understand why people turn to punishment because we're hurt and we're angry. Unfortunately, punishment doesn't work. It fundamentally doesn't. We can look back at the entire span of human history and see that nothing has ever fundamentally changed because of punishment. All you can do is maybe scare someone or force someone into not doing one particular thing, but you're not changing the system that made that happen in the first place. And when it comes to prison, punishment gets even more problematic because we're putting a bunch of people who are themselves often very traumatized into a contained space where they are further traumatized and traumatizing each other. And then some of them, most of them, we turn back out onto the streets with no support services. So we're making people hurt even more. In the UK, 27% of adults in prison have been in care and almost 40% of people in prison under 21 were in care as children. Just over 70% of people in prison suffer from two or more mental health disorders. Over half the people in women's prisons have experienced domestic violence, and one in three has experienced sexual abuse. When I first read these stats, I was shocked. Something about the system isn't working, but I don't know what the solution should be. When I came out as an abolitionist to my family, um, even though, you know, my family had experiences of imprisonment and policing, they thought I was also insane. <laughs> this is Molly Porzig. What are you talking about? Like, no prisons, you know? People do bad things. They thought that we need prisons. And so what I started to do was I got them to try to imagine how do we respond to harm without policing, imprisonment, and surveillance. If this situation went down with our neighbors and we couldn't call the cops, what would we do? What do you know? They came up <laughs> with ways to respond that didn't involve calling the cops. Molly is an abolitionist organizer based in California. She's been an abolitionist activist since she was a teenager. When I was growing up in the late 1990s, early 2000s, I noticed or just experienced a lot of the ways that youth were being criminalized. And so what was happening in my community is a lot of my family members and a lot of my friends and people in my neighborhood and in my schools were being harassed by police, labeled members of different gangs. I have family members that have been in and out of prison my whole life. And so, yeah, it was just a very real thing that I was experiencing as I was growing up. Um, I also spent time in the juvenile system um, as a youth. And so when I 
Went to college. I got to take a class with Angela Davis. Angela Davis, amazing activist, academic, and author of the book, Are Prisons Obsolete? Well, I think it was um, Dostoevsky who said that you can uh, determine what the nature of any given society is by taking a look at its prisons. She was a Black Panther, and in 1997, she was a founding member of Critical Resistance, or CR, an organisation that works towards abolishing prisons, policing and surveillance. And then, of course, uh, what I saw around me, I saw black people resisting. There's this myth that black people did not resist until Watts or until uh, Malcolm or until the Black Panther Party. It's just not true. Pretty cool person to have as a university professor. When I went to her office hours, she told me that I should start organising with CR in Oakland. I asked Molly about the history of prison abolition. Prison abolition it has its roots in the struggles against chattel slavery here in the United States, as well as against European colonisation of the Americas and the Global South. But prison abolition is the cause we know it now, really took off in the 1970s and 80s. The reason why the 1970s was kind of a moment where people started to name prison abolition as a struggle is because there were actually a lot of uprisings in prisons. One of the most famous one that's known around the world is the Attica Uprising in 1971. One, we demand the constitutional rights of legal representation at the time of all parole board hearings and the protection from the procedures of the parole authorities, whereby they permit no procedural safeguards, such as an attorney for crossing... So in these prisoner um, uprisings and forms of prisoner-led resistance, a lot of folks who were locked up were fighting for reformist changes to the prison system. The Attica Prison Hospital is totally inadequate, understaffed and prejudiced in the treatment of inmates. Trying to pass different initiatives that would change like prison administration policy or like what guards could do or the conditions that prisoners were living in, right? Um, But what we started to see during that time was that not very much changed, right? The conditions of confinement, the conditions of being locked up, um, the whole system of the prisons themselves still remained incredibly violent. Right. So it was kind of like we can't use these Band-Aid fixes. Right. We need to talk about actually getting rid of um, this entire system as a whole. Molly introduced me to this phrase, the prison industrial complex or the PIC. And the prison industrial complex is a term that we started to use in the late 90s that speaks to the overlapping interests of government and industry and all the ways that those interests use surveillance, policing, and imprisonment as solutions to economic, social, and political problems. So basically, prison abolitionists see prisons as part of this big web that includes the probation service, the courts, and all the companies that make their money from building and running prisons. But even beyond that, it turns out there are lots of companies that use prisons as a source of cheap labour for manufacturing. People who have been sent to prison get paid incredibly low wages to make products for companies. Starbucks, McDonald's, DHL and Victoria's Secrets are all among the companies that have used people on the inside as part of their labour force. There are all these people who make money off the prison system, so they have no incentive to stop crime from happening. 
you know, I worked in the workshop when I was in prison. It's the only way I got some money. I was paid 10, well, less than £10 a week. Amanda. You know, I was making um, umbrellas. So everyone I, I wired together, I got paid a penny. And I had to work flat out, flat out, just to get the basics so I could live. Because the prison doesn't provide you with everything. So you need money in prison. I didn't have any, have any money coming from the outside. You know, it's, it's like you're making lots of money, but you're only giving me, who's made that money, a tiny fraction of it. it you know, they say, oh, it, it improves your job chances. It really, it genuinely doesn't. I made brollies in prison. That, that doesn't improve my CV. Morgan told me that in order to abolish prisons, you also have to abolish the police. Often people turn to the police because they are experiencing some form of conflict. Mm. And the police seem like this, this thing that will solve any problem because I don't know how to solve it anymore. I don't want to deal with this. I'm just going to call 999. But then when the police show up, they often do things that people aren't expecting. Um, Someone could call the police because their neighbor is playing music too loud and they just want them to turn it down. But then their neighbor could get harmed and Mm. arrested. Right. And they didn't actually want that to happen. With the police, it comes out of the history of the slave trade and the period immediately following it. It is an entire system and structure that was set up to enact racist violence, right? And its continual expansion over the century following tied into the drug war and into um, further entrenching prisons and borders in our communities is incredibly racialized. We need to start from the place of finding other ways of resolving normative conflicts. If your neighbor's music is too loud, then maybe you need to go over and have a conversation with your neighbor and be like, listen, it's three in the morning, I gotta sleep. Like, come on, be a friend. (laughs) When we remove police from the equation, communities get stronger. The PIC is set up in a way that claims to be addressing certain problems, right? So it's like addressing problems of crime, quote unquote, right? Or violence or drug use, those kinds of things. But actually, if you look at what is created, what is produced, what's the outcome of being locked up, policed or surveilled, it creates violence, it breaks up families, it destroys communities, right? Um, It actually creates the conditions that drive people to become dependent on harmful substances, right? Um, As a form of coping with trauma. It kind of means that the only option if we're trying to fix things is abolition, right? Like reform shouldn't even really be on the table. You know, like, what danger does a shoplifter pose, yet they're imprisoned? If, you know, murderers, rapists, child molesters, I wouldn't say fair enough, but, you know, people like that deserve to be in prison. What about the rapists and the murderers? 
It's kind of like the go-to question when we talk about abolition. That's next. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We're back. In my interview with Amanda, she said that murderers and rapists and child molesters deserve to be in prison. And when I spoke to Molly from Critical Resistance, I asked her about this too. How do we deal with really violent crimes in a world without prisons? I think one thing that frustrates me about that question is it's posed as if abolitionists don't know harm and violence. Yeah. Most of the abolitionists I know, like myself, were survivors of rape, were survivors of child sexual abuse, right? The thing that's hard with this question isn't that abolition isn't practical and we haven't thought about stuff like this. Of course we have, <laughs> right? It's more that there isn't an easy answer, right? And one thing that capitalism really conditions us to want to believe is that there's easy answers and just like throw a Band-Aid on it. Right. Mm -hmm. And you can't deal with something as severe as rape or murder with a Band-Aid fix. Yeah. I think one thing that is kind of first and foremost is a saying that the Black Panther Party for self-defense often used. If you want to change someone's behavior, change the way that someone acts, you have to change their conditions. Mm -hmm. So... On one hand, we do need to respond to a specific instance of harm, like rape, right? Yeah. But we also have to actually radically transform the conditions of our communities. We have to build up the life-affirming, radical community infrastructure that we need that are the resources that actually create things like real safety, security, health, and sustainability, right? So that's like meaningful education, right? Affordable and quality housing for people. Molly says that having these infrastructures in place would reduce the amount of people committing horrendous crimes. Most people who have done harm have been harmed, right? They're either harmed by the state and society in these really awful horrendous, unimaginable conditions that we live in, right? And or they've been interpersonally harmed by that very person that they're now harming or someone else. I don't think that there's actually really that much of a line between perpetrator and victim. When you look at people who commit sexual harm, sexual violence towards other people, almost all of them report having experienced it themselves before in their lives in some way. When we realize that, that this is about cycles of violence that are going on, it changes how we respond to it. Because what we need to do is interrupt the cycle. We need to provide healing for the survivor. We need to provide healing for the person who has done the harm. And then we need to break the cycle in that community. 
The thing is that no one has actually ever tried to end systematically this type of violence. What we end up doing is trying to end individual instances of it. A lot of survivors who are able to get that sort of catharsis of like seeing their perpetrator get put behind bars, then realize that, oh, I'm actually still left with all of this trauma. No one has tried to heal me. I've been given no services. So what was this for? Turns out it was just for the state. It's not like we're doing a very good job of dealing with rape and murder right now. It's only like less than 2% Mm. of rape cases end up in a charge and like less than that end up in conviction. So we know that people are running around doing all this stuff all the time and receiving absolutely no consequences for it. And that to me says we need to start thinking much broader about how we deal with this if what we want to do is end violence. A lot of people, when they hear prison abolition, the first thing they go to is, well, what about the murderers and the rapists? And it's like, yes, we need prison abolition for that too. But that is a very, very tiny percentage of who is in prison. The vast majority of people in prison are in prison for nonviolent crimes. Exactly. Our culture is obsessed with the idea that there are heroes and there are villains. There are good guys, there are bad guys. And the more that we challenge that, the more we undo the logic that underpins the prison, which is that there are bad people and they need to be kept away from the good people. And this simply is not the case. Okay, so what would you actually do in a world without prisons? How would it work? Morgan told me that one of the central principles of prison abolition is community accountability. What community accountability does is try to not sweep problems under the rug and instead pull people into relationship with each other in an attempt to fix harm. There are two main types of community accountability. The first is restorative justice, primarily inspired by indigenous communities. So the basic idea of restorative justice is to bring the person who has been harmed and the person who has done the harm into conversation with each other and try to fix the problem. Like out of school, for example, if a teenager steals another teenager's iPod, you sit them down, you have them have a conversation about why it happened, and then you give back the iPod. Yeah. That's the most basic fundamental level. The second school of thought tries to think even broader than restorative justice, and it's called transformative justice. And this is the idea that we need to look further and see why did it happen. So that kid who steals another kid's iPod or iPhone or whatever, is doing it probably because they don't have one and they feel like they need to have one. And that's often driven by poverty as most crime is driven, right? So transformative justice says to us, we need to heal the harm, but then we need to go further and heal the structure that made that harm inevitable. Transformative justice is big thinking. 
It's about changing huge things in society like poverty, capitalism and institutional racism. But Morgan and Molly both told me that being a prison abolitionist means applying these principles to every part of your life. When I was a high school teacher, I was an abolitionist high school teacher. Very practically, I never sent a student out of my classroom. Like no matter what, I did not resort to punishment. I also like never sent a student to the principal's office, right? Or wrote a referral as a form of punishment. Um, I made that commitment, but then I also developed strategies so that I wouldn't have to do that. I tried to do everything that I could to make my classroom a space that all students wanted to be in, right? And that they felt valued in. So when, you know, someone like the school counselor or another teacher needed to talk to a student and they were like, hey, we have to pull you from Miss P's classroom. You know, they were like, no, I don't want to miss Miss P's class. Right. So like really trying to create that kind of an environment where everyone is an integral part of the community of your classroom. Right. So that's that's also a personal, but maybe a slightly professional way that abolition can look. Do you ever find it hard to follow through on your own abolitionist beliefs when you experience personal harm or injustice? It is very hard to live our own values all the time consistently. I struggle with it a lot. Sometimes people do things that really hurt me or piss me off. And my first instinct is to want to lash out at them. I have a very sharp tongue. It is very easy for me to hurt someone with my words. What I've had to learn to do, though, is to take a step back and take a breath. Wait for myself to calm down, and then I can come back to the table and resolve it with people. Most people get through their lives by examining their own thoughts, beliefs, and behaviors as little as possible (laughs) Um, because it's uncomfortable. And as abolitionists, we actually need to dive into that discomfort. On a larger, grander, collective scale of organizing, Abolition also has to happen on like a citywide level and on a community level. And so what that looks like is mobilizing our communities to stop parts of the PIC from expanding or functioning so we can organize to stop jails from being built. We can organize to release people from prison and jail. And what advice would you give to someone who's trying to rethink their personal relationship to harm and justice? I would say spending the time to either do the reading or listen to podcasts or go watch some video interviews on YouTube, especially of people like Ruth Wilson Gilmore, um, Angela Davis, Miriam Kaba, Victoria Law, all these people who are, let's be honest, for the most part, women of color mm. who have been leading the way in what this is about. There's a lot about abolition that's very common sense. It it makes sense, right? That like people need certain things in order to not just survive, but to thrive. Mm. And so I I don't want to forget the importance of the building work, right? Um, And that really this is about building up life-affirming support and infrastructure so that we're not competing with each other. We're not pulling each other down, right? Um, So that there's not more privileged groups, groups with more power, oppressing and holding 
black, brown, working class communities in oppression. Why are they not concentrating on prevention? Why don't they spend the money on support to prevent the crimes in the first place? And it's not just the cost in financial terms, it's the cost to society and the cost to us as humans. Thank you for listening to Vent Documentaries. I'm Lauren. Vent Documentaries are produced by Jess Lawson and Ali Adlington, with the help from Marid Majid, Emilia Gill and Kamaya Shea. Our music is from WMP Studios. Vent is a collaboration between Vice and Brent 2020, London Borough of Culture.